Welcome to Lean Back. I'm Lisa. And I'm Laura. And today we're talking about Trump and identity politics. And we wanted to do this bonus episode because we feel like there are a couple of major themes happening in the Trump administration that deserve a little bit more attention, especially on the podcast as they pertain to race, gender, class, levels of ability, sexual orientation, and sex. So, Laura, do you want to talk a little bit about where you think the Trump administration is in terms of its identity politics more generally? I don't really think we can start this conversation about, like, the broad identity politics of the Trump administration without talking about the behavior of the president himself. He has multiple sexual assault allegations. He's openly crass about women who don't fit into our particular very narrow parameters about attractiveness and class, honestly, and race a lot of the time. He calls women pigs regularly. And also, I mean, he uses language that disregards the necessity of consent. And then, of course, like in in terms of policymaking, he himself has been actively seeking policies that are legitimately anti-civil rights, um, you know, with the, the travel bans and just recently the transgender military ban. I think we have to discuss Trump himself as a, an agent um, in this conversation. How do you think the way that he has represented himself and the type of language he uses, I mean, how does that play into his administration's policies on a larger scale. Gender scholars rely on R.W. Connell's work on hegemonic masculinity, which talks about the way in which multiple masculinities emerge as historical constructions across space and time, and they justify and legitimize what behavior is acceptable for men. In this case, I think Trump is the quintessential example of white hegemonic masculinity, where he has consolidated a bunch of tropes and behaviors around himself that he sort of externalizes his expectations for others. And by necessity, then the subordination of women becomes an incredibly important part of that, as well as the subordination of um, non-binary or non-normative bodies, whether that's racially or in terms of their sexual orientation or their gender performance or what have you. And so I like thinking about him as an example of white hegemonic masculinity because I like the hegemonic part, the part about consolidating social power around the identity of white masculinity. And I think if you look at the makeup of his cabinet, and if you look at the way that he talks about himself and others, he falls into that, the consolidation of masculinity around an archetypal white masculine, patrofamilia, the father of the family, right, who is employing his sons mostly and his daughter to do his bidding for him, who subordinates his wives, who subordinates other men's wives, who talks about women as subordinate objects of attraction or of policy. And so for me, when I think about him as an agent, as someone who has social power, 
I'm really interested in thinking about the way that dominance shapes the way that he interacts with other men as well as other people generally. And so I think that, you know, organizational analyses of his administration will look back on the way in which he subordinates members of his cabinet and people who work for him and sort of just pits them against one another in this like super hostile workplace to fight it out. It's like dogfighting. Mm-hmm. You know, his cabinet is like dogfighting or, or cockfighting is probably really honestly the better analogy here where he's just like pitting these huge male chickens to like peck each other to death in this ring where he's the only one who's spectating. And then the fallout, of course, is the burden for the rest of America. So that's what I think about his identity politics as a, as, an, as an individual, as a president, you know. I mean, a lot of what I felt like he tried to represent and what a lot of his votership identified with was a cult of personality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. And it's a cult of personality that is, it's familiar because it features white men as a protected class. An aggrieved and, protected class. An aggrieved, yeah. I mean, it's like hardcore white male fragility. Absolutely. Put upon by civil rights protections and the social movements of the 60s. It's extremely Reagan-esque in its um, condemnation of youth. It's not that I don't recognize that there are white men that struggle under the constructs of our current economic system. But when they are magnified as the premier aggrieved class... They do it also by devaluing women and devaluing minorities. I mean, it's like they feel that if they're not doing well, they're not to blame. And they, they aren't. But placing the blame on people that are also being oppressed by an unreasonable economic system. Yeah, it's absurdity. That's kind of how power works, though. It's like everywhere and nowhere at once. That's why white people or white men especially can't see the way that they participate in and benefit from systems of privilege, especially if they themselves are not economically at the top. But the thing that I like about Connell's definition of hegemonic masculinity as it applies to Trump and sort of this cultural moment that we're living through is that that work points to characteristics of hegemonic masculinity that I think are very instructive here. So uh, violence, aggression, emotional restraint, an emphasis on courage through toughness, uh, competitiveness, achievement, success, all of his tweets and the entire embodiment of his style fundamentally embrace the hegemonic masculinity, which is why you don't hear him talk about his mother ever. Like, she does not exist. What do we know about Trump? So he doesn't talk about her. She doesn't exist. Whereas I think if you think back to Obama or you think about the Bushes <laughs> or you think about Clinton, their mothers and the stories of motherhood, they claimed a tremendous part of the narrative of the president and the presidency. Here it's completely edited out. It's like mothers don't exist. It's like men spring from the, the head of Zeus and are fully formed warriors, you know, these culture warriors for masculinity and for this like reassertion of male power. And I don't know that Donald Trump privately believes that is an ideological thing, but I am saying that the orientation of his rhetorical and political power is absolutely towards the performance of hegemonic masculinity, that America should be the hegemon, the hegemon should be this articulation of strength and courage and thrill-seeking and adventure and total and complete dominance and and submission on the other side, 
to to the exclusion of all else. I like that you say that because Donald Trump represents to a lot of men what is possible mm-hmm. in the current economic worldview that's being reinforced by this hegemonic masculinity. Donald Trump, I think even a lot of people who support him would say he's incompetent in some ways. But they appreciate that he's been able to achieve so much success and now power. They idolize that in some way. It's just bizarre to me that a lot of these men who are being held back by like an economic system that requires a working class that never gets ahead. (laughs) The reason for that is because there is no real class discussion in the United States. So those men who want to emulate Donald Trump do not know how to talk about money and its relationship to history at all because socialism has been demonized in America for the last 100 years. So they don't don't have a vocabulary for it. They think the system is still benefiting them. They see Donald Trump and they're like, you know... Yeah, it's aspirational. It's not too late for me. (laughs) I could be like them when I grow up. But the other thing, the the other side that we haven't talked about yet, though, is the way in which um, evangelical Christianity is used to buttress hegemonic masculinity and hence Pence, hence Pence. Uh, so we have Pence, who becomes the other side, right? The the supposedly softer, gentler side of hegemonic masculinity. But that's not true, right? Because this kind of archetypal masculine figure has to rely on the consolidation of, of not just moral authority, in giant air quotes, but then also the consolidation of wealth through tax shelters, which evangelical churches have been since Reagan. The role that Pence is playing in the RIFRA debates at the state level to destroy the civil rights of LGBTQ American citizens. And then now at the national level to like exclude women from public meetings and from positions of power is it's intrinsic to how hegemonic masculinity works. I mean, academics read this stuff, this gender theory. It's like, here's some theories about the way things work. But this is like literally the perfect instantiation of the theory with these two models of masculinity, one being the hyper-aggressive dominant financier, right, who loves women and loves to fuck and thinks of himself as this, like, you know, titan among men, and then this, like, ridiculous purity figure who thinks that his masculinity exists because he is pure enough to exclude any impurities from his inner circle, including women and people of color and disabled citizens and immigrants and Muslims, all of those categories. It's like this this kind of representational container that is fundamentally empty and ultimately represents nothing. I like that you brought in that evangelical Christian element with Pence because I think he represents what the the Republican Party has been doing for a long time. Christianity for a long time has been about patronism and serving the needs mm-hmm. of particular interest groups. The state. <laughs> Right. For example. There's a whole history of that, and the Republican Party is doing the same thing, except that it's evolved to become more and more about money. But this is where I get weird on you. You know, we have these episodes occasionally, especially in these bonus episodes where I say unexpected things. I'm going to do that now. Because I think that that's actually, that has the potential to be an opportunity. Everybody else who's resisting the Trump administration wants to see a different kind of America. Because I think that... The thing that Trump is doing is fundamentally exposing that the emperor has no clothes. And so, like, the loyalty talk and the patronage talk and the quid pro quoedness that is so crass and so open, actually, that's a conversation that we need to be having. 
about political patronage and how it structures power, and especially white male power, and especially in the executive and the legislative branches, and even in uh, in the judicial. But I think that that exposing that crassness that's actually has the potential to be reinvigorating for democracy. Insofar as you're invested in democracy as a system, there's some interesting things to be said about how to use that as an opportunity to really reassess the way in which we understand who should be in power and what kind of of responsibilities that they have when they hold power. I think that thinking about them in this identity politics way is useful, Pence and Trump, because it really gets to um, some of the limitations of the American political system historically that really need to be revisited, quite yeah. frankly. I mean, it's been obvious, partially because of the cult of personality that we talked about, mm-hmm. where, like, women are obviously devalued just by Trump's language alone. There are a lot of people who have experienced systematic oppression and haven't been, like, outwardly aggrieved by it yeah. <laughs> until now, when it's, like, so visible when it's so hyper-visible, mm-hmm. um, and there's, like, matching language. I mean, I think it's tempting to read this as, like, the death rattle of hegemonic white masculinity as we've seen it, potentially, as a 20th century consolidation of power, if only because it's definitely a reaction to the black guy president. It's definitely a reaction to the white lady who won the popular vote, <laughs> you know, especially since white women were the beneficiaries of affirmative action policies, bar none. Um, they achieved more political and economic gains as a result of affirmative action than any other group in America. And then it is also a reaction to shifting demographics in the United States as we become more brown. So for people who, especially who are getting super down about the daily news cycle and how crazy it is and um, regressive. I mean, it's this is not something that can, can continue. It, it's not self-propagating. It won't self-propagate in the same way. There is a limit to it because of its crassness and because of its over-reliance on such a narrow category of identity. And so for people who are interested in rebuilding political power, it's going to have to be young and it's going to have to be brown and it's going to have to be queer and it's going to have to be female and it's going to have to be uh, differently abled and it's going to have to look much different than this if you want a different result. If you don't want a different result and you keep doing the same things, you are going to get the same result. That's crazy. Sort of an investigation into how he sets up his, Trump sets up his inner circle of of colleagues is instructive in thinking about pressure points and modes of resistance that are useful in reformulating political power from the states up, because that's how it's going to have to be. It's going to have to be, you know, the states that are going to drive a different form of politics and and ultimately probably a different form of patronage. There are a couple places that we need to have this conversation. We certainly have to talk about the press. We have to talk about the Senate right now and Congress and how it's functioning or dysfunctioning alongside of Trump. We need to talk about the military and then we need to talk about sort of citizenship more broadly. So maybe maybe you can talk a little bit about the press and the relationship between the press and Trump and thinking through this identity politics moment. Trump has been vilifying the press or the press as it was before he took power. Trump was trying to delegitimize journalistic integrity, basically, um, in a way that was like evaluating him fairly. He's been spending a lot of time 
trying to reframe the rhetoric around himself and his presidency and trying to like control the narrative right about about who he is and like (laughs) what he's doing as the president and who hillary clinton is (laughs) right well (laughs) let's be honest yeah it's probably 70 30 from day one yeah (laughs) so yeah it's really interesting how he you know any kind of oppositional narrative about him is fake fake (laughs) or sad um or bad you know like very basic (laughs) takedowns without any warrant right yeah (laughs) and then he has this machine um of people who speak for him Conway Spicer. <laughs> Who speak for him without Who's speaking to him. Exactly, I was, yeah. The thing that's happening there, from, like, from a rhetorical perspective as a communication scholar, is the undermining of speech. And so I, I've been saying a lot sort of colloquially, this is not a rhetorical moment. Like people are not being politically persuaded to do X, Y, or Z. And I say that that's not exactly true. It's kind of hyperbolic, but it's also kind of true because there's a style of his governing that is about the embodiment of identity politics that is not about the logic of policy. It is, it is re- resolutely anti-policy oriented. It is about style and performativity, not about persuasion whatsoever. And so the attacks to me, I think, on the press are about undermining speech as the primary way in which politics gets done in the United States. And that has a lot of consequences as consequences for communication scholars, because like a bunch of people in my field only study speech and don't have tools to study other forms of communication or other forms of the presidency or other ways of understanding how power is emerging in persuasive ways that might not be obviously rhetorical. It has a lot of implications, I think, for the people, because if they want to change the way in which they are being related to as the population, as the polis, then they also have to change the way that they're talking about politics. And one of the things that I think that his administration is doing poorly, but that might be important, is cutting against the the liberal smugness that was absolutely the foundation of white identity during the Obama administration, certainly prior to that but absolutely during the Obama administration, certainly during the Clinton campaign. This sort of smugness that they had all of the cards and they were holding the whole deck and they were going to win no matter what and her grounding was so great. And all of the late night, daily show-esque kinds of satire are really a form of smugness as politics. And that's grotesque and it's really bad for democracy. So for me, I think that liberals should, you know, hold up the mirror a little bit and say, what did we do to precipitate this presidency? Because it's not like they are not also responsible for the kind of identity politics that he is performing. They are absolutely responsible, certain, perhaps not as much so, maybe, but definitely they had a huge, huge um, impact on the production of his discussion of the press. Yeah, we absolutely can't ignore that the partisanship um, that's been cultivated in the last couple of decades in the United States hasn't played into yeah. um, Trump's <laughs> rise to power. I don't know. I mean, a lot of the Republican Party expressed significant doubts about Trump. But when it came to brass tacks... 
they're still supporting Trump. But that's because, because they pa- have party loyalty. It's like choosing a sports team, right? Once you decide on your team, that's your team forever. And that's mostly how party politics works. There's all this hand-wringing about, you know, these huge numbers of white women who voted, you know, Republican for Trump. That's not surprising. They also voted for Romney. Okay, like they are on the team that their husbands and fathers picked for the most part. And that doesn't, it's really hard to dislodge those people from their parties, which is why voter registration, get out the vote, you know, and new candidates who speak to unregistered or alienated voters, that's why that's important from an electoral perspective. There's also this alienation that's coming from Trump's own White House, right? Yeah. I mean, it's just bizarre for him to receive that kind of support when his colleagues were actively chafing at his, like, existence uh, yeah and they were a- actively disavowing things that he said <laughs> i mean for him to still have that partisan support speaks to just how ingrained that partisanship is right now although to be fair i mean it's almost seven months into the administration he has the lowest popularity of any president you know, in in the last whatever hundred years, right? Going yeah. into his first year at this point. I mean, his signature, you know, initiative is the repeal of a highly successful Democratic predecessor, and he's not gonna be able to do it. I mean But also polls six months out of election day showed him at low popularity levels, like a, a very low chance of winning the national election, and here we are. Yeah, but so, I, but it I changes. I mean, because we're not really talking at this point. We're not talking about Obama a re-election. No, not like this. Not at all. Not, not even like in the this, same realm. But you know. But now, but it's different because right now, the thing that the base wants, you know, certainly within his own party, is to hold Congress, and his coattails are shrinking by the day. Because he's going after female senators like, you know, uh, Lisa Murkowski in Alaska and Susan Collins in Maine, who voted yesterday to uh, not repeal, replace the Affordable Care Act. And he's personally targeting them in their states. And people do not are not going to like that. The Republican Party is not going to like that kind of retributive relationship. And so, you know, we're not talking about his re-election now. We're talking about how big are his coattails and who wants to ride on them. (laughs) Can he carry them to a finish line? And so the popularity game now looks very different than it did when it was the presidential contest and it was an N of one. Now he's going to have to win an electoral cycle in the House and try to hold the Senate with a bunch of policies that are either totally inept or are miscalculations of the greatest order. It's going to be very hard for him to keep that together, especially when he's sniping at his own people. Sean Spicer's the guy everybody loves to hate because of Melissa McCarthy. God bless her. She's an American hero. But at the end of the day, he's not going to be able to find people to come and tell random stuff from the press podium that they haven't consulted him about. It's, how, it's inarticulate. How does anyone decide to ride on Trump's coattails after they saw the path of Chris Christie? Like, yeah, no, I don't know. How do you see... The poor man's Tony Soprano? (laughs) How do you see that happen and then still think it's (laughs) so wild? Poor Chris Christie had to shut the beach because he was too sad to go by himself. He would have been mobbed for being such a halfwit. Yeah, I I don't... I mean, you get... Because they're... 
get elected as Republicans with different parameters. They were Republicans before Trump. Many of them will be Republicans after Trump. Um, at some point, you have to serve the commander in chief. That's a that's a real thing, you know. So I I understand that as a as a political constraint, but as a practical matter, I just I'm just like. If you're listening, Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins, Democratic Party will take you with open arms. <laughs> Run, don't walk. I'm sure they would love to have you on the team. You know, it's like people are going to make some really interesting decisions in the next two years. I, I think about Jeff Sessions, who's clearly a member of the Klan and complete and total wackadoo and a relic of like this 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 era in the American South that should have been over a long fucking time ago. And and here is America. We're going to be forced to take up that sad bastard, <laughs> you know, as a as a fallout of this inept administration. Like, in what world is championing the integrity of the FBI the bastion of the liberal side? I mean, it's, it's fucking mental. It It's mental. Yeah, I mean, if we go back to the press, as soon as they were received that kind of attack from from Trump, they took... They took a stance that was like, this shit is insane. Yeah. I mean, most of uh, the the major press outlets took a hard stance against Trump. They immediately launched into fundraising campaigns that like basically were, I mean, that were entirely based on antipathy. Yeah, well, whatever. (laughs) I mean, look, I don't have a lot of sympathy for the media either because they did this to themselves. They refused over and over again to carry stories during the electoral contest about what people in the middle of America were saying about Trump. It was willful negligence by legacy media that got us to the point where the liberals thought Hillary Clinton was locked. They did that to themselves. Now, that's not to say that there isn't a place for legacy media or that we shouldn't invest in it or perhaps occupy it and transform it, which would be my, you know, obviously that would be my um, choice. But um, they did this to themselves also. They have responsibility in creating this monster who's now flinging shit at the rest of America. And we're going to have to clean up this nightmare for years to come because he is a bull in a china shop with very little skills of governing. I mean, I, I wrote the other day about how he reminds me of other men that I've worked at in organizational settings that do not know how to be a team player, right? Because the hegemonic male, white dude, does not play on teams. He is the singular winner. He wins all the time. He gets to keep what he kills, right? That's like his model of success and engagement. That's not how governing works. <laughs> it certainly is not. So at some point, his you know archetypal masculinity is going to run up against the very real constraints of what it means to be within a check, checked and balanced culture. He is going to run into situations where people are going to be unwilling to collaborate with him, where he becomes a liability because he is unable to shut up and listen, or because he's unable to deliver, right? Because he has populated his office with stooges and patsies. That is going to be an organizational liability for him. That is also an opportunity for people who want a different kind of political arrangement, whether that's in Congress or whether that's in the executive office in 2020. If we're thinking about gigantic policy announcements that have no basis in reality, like, you know, the transgender military ban and the Muslim ban, those are lunacy. They're lunatics. They're they're uh, they're patently unconstitutional, and it just seems to me that they will catalyze more uh, resistance to him. 
in really practical, tangible ways. Like, I think we, we talked on one of the episodes last season about how I have never seen white people ride for Muslims in America, certainly not since 9 Have you ever, I mean, that's not a thing. You've got all these white people and all these lawyers showing up at airports to fight the Muslim ban. That is a canary in the coal mine. That tells me that for all of the identity politics on the left that want to write, you know, white people off as not understanding allyship, there are a shit ton of Gen Xers and millennials who are absolutely down for the fight to really transform American politics. And the question is whether or not the white moneyed elites, especially in the Democratic Party, will step to the fucking side so that there can be a real social transformation, the thing that they've talked about but never, ever really wanted to execute. And if they won't step aside, then they have to be pushed aside. And that's what it's going to take, quite frankly. Right. I mean, I, I like that that resistance it's, that has been a direct response to Trump's policies. And I think we really need to see more of that. And I know, I know just after his election, there was a visceral, strong response. <laughs> you know, like the yeah. Women's March. Yeah, why women were up in their fields. after the initial travel ban, again, the response was strong. There just isn't a culture of resistance in the United States right now. That's because the labor unions were destroyed. Okay, that's why people need to be reading more about class. I like the resistance that we're seeing. And I, I want it to be stronger and more frequent. Any kind of attack that the administration takes that devalues lives, whether it's from like a financial standpoint, the healthcare bill, or from a citizenship standpoint, the, the travel bans and the uh, military participation, I mean, all of that needs um, an appropriate response. I mean, I really do think we could benefit from having a stronger <laughs> grassroots resistance. But I mean, it, but but it depends on who's resisting and how. Because quite frankly, you know, the question is one of finite labor, right? People can call and that's good. But who's going to hand out the, the voter registrations and mail them? And who is going to drive people to the polls? And who is going to re-educate America about how to rebuild a culture that actually is inclusive? That means a living wage. That means quality public education. It's not that it's that difficult to seize on the ideas, but I think for a culture that has devalued public education so consistently since the 1970s and hasn't had an honest conversation about the value or the utility of public public education in the last hundred years. I mean, yeah. No Child Left Behind was an abject failure because there was no there was no buy-in from educators about it because it was just top-down bullshit. And so, you know, that kind of radical reconceptualization of what a shared future looks like in a demographically different America, in, a, in an America where rural and urban differences matter, where it's becoming less and less efficient to deliver rights to rural places because they can't be cared for because of cap, neoliberal capitalism. Those kinds of conversations are hard conversations. They're historical conversations, but they have to be had. So for me, I think, you know, as, as we think about the identity politics that Trump himself is articulating and the way that he is baiting 
liberals into an identity politics of fragmentation, the more that I think that people should be reading about large-scale policy initiatives that cut across all the major identity markers that they want to pull up. It's important to identify as black. It's important to identify as brown. It's it's important to identify as differently abled as an in-group identification, as a way of thinking through difference as a positive thing that can help build community. But from a policy perspective, it is also helpful to understand how we can rebuild institutional culture, right, and structural culture that includes everybody, which is why a living wage campaign is a winner, right? Everybody benefits from that. You get lots of buy-in, right? So in a moment where Trump's move is to hyper-accentuate identity politics, the only response is a platform that takes on technologies of power that are not reliant on identity politics. And that is, I think, an anathema for groups who have made their identities after the 1960s into accentuating separate spaces. It's not, I'm not saying that those separate spaces are bad. I write about them and study them. I think they're extremely valuable. But from a national perspective, when we think about political organizing, those identity perspectives have to inform a larger politics that lifts up as many people as possible if you want to swing away from authoritarianism. And I'm not saying that there aren't other goals, too, that people have, right? But if the biggest macro goal is to reimagine the fabric of American culture to be more democratic, more inclusive, and more equitable, economically equitable in terms of resources, then we are going to actually have to move away from the identity politics thing. It, Trump is breaking it, is what I'm saying. He's here's, breaking here's identity the thing, politics. Though. The GOP and Trump's administration uses economics as an excuse. Yeah, oh yeah, 100%. <laughs> to advance that inequitable yes. identity politics, yep. right? 100%. So most of the national conversation that's been about education has been about the economic reality of education. Like the major conversation in the last 30 years about education policy has been about vouchers. Yes. Completely like market-based Crap. System. Right. Garbage. Um, and I mean, I don't know how many examples we can make about who he's chosen in his cabinet. All of it is based on this narrow approach to economics. And there's this like facade of advancing well-being for everyone. But that's not the case. Because if the GDP of the United States is increasing by 3% a year, it it's not equitably distributed. Yeah, totally. Right? So... <laughs> There's this problem with talking about economics in that way because there's a rationale where it's like, yeah, this market system, you know, overall is better for everyone. But if you zoom in anywhere on any of the departments where he's named these like lunatics. Yeah. <laughs> I mean Betsy DeVos I mean, is completely market, reckless. She's yeah. reckless. I mean, they're market evangelicals, basically is who he's appointed to a lot of these departments. That's why, you know, I see all these liberals freaking out all over the internet, and they're like, he's self-sabotaging, Trump, and he doesn't know what he's doing. That is, like, the r- most ridiculous read possible of the situation. He knows exactly what he's doing. The mantra is to build wealth, period. That, it's it's complete, it's hyper-rational. It's totally rational. Yeah. I mean, it's not responsible. That's the argument. That's the argument. But it's build hyper-rational. Wealth. Yes. It's not distributed that's right. whatsoever. That's right. Whatsoever. Yeah. That's why That's why black folks are Religion. like, can we talk about reparations? Because reparations are a different way of conceptualizing economic responsibility. 
in a neoliberal capitalist democracy that may or may not be an oligarchy. That's why reparations has become, again, a mode of conversation about capital and what to think about land and wealth and gentrification and property and ownership and their relationship to citizenship. And I think, too, the those ridiculous tweets came out yesterday banning trans servicemen from the military. And of course, the Joint Chiefs of Staff immediately issued a statement that was like, shut your pie hole. We're not doing that. Which is, suggests to me that it's a massive political blunder that he tweeted those things in the first place. But it also suggests to me that just in the same way that Trump is creating this hegemonic masculinity through his own production of, of dominance and through Mike Pence's the corollary, this sort of soft evangelical dominance of women through the economy of churches, there is also this homonationalist element that demonstrates how queers and transgender folks and LGBTQ citizens are used to help rebuild white nationalism. And I think that a lot of the liberal outrage about the administration, you know, gets sucked into these battles over women or over queers or over black folks and over brown folks. And People are right to be outraged because they're ridiculous, like, you know, non-sustainable policy announcements that are are not even really doable within the executive. But also I think that they serve as dog whistles to draw people's attention away from deeper conversations, whether those conversations are about Trump's finances or the finances of his, his appointees or his staff or uh, distractions from longer, ser more serious conversations about what an opposition party looks like, not just a reactionary party, or larger conversations about the relationship between wealth and class and capital and the Democratic Party, or larger conversations about grassroots activism and rebuilding state politics from the ground up. Again, I write about black separatism and Cuban separatism. And I write about identity politics as they emerged from the milieu of the 1960s. The emergence and the production of identity politics now is shifting. And in order to refashion American politics, it just seems to me that the just reactionary responses to the dog whistles cannot be enough and ultimately may actually undermine longer term strategies, right? Like this is a long game. There's just so much to say about the way in which identity groups and people who represent those identity groups are being fashioned as handmaidens for the consolidation of wealth. And that relationship just needs to be unpacked, I think. The situation in which we're living now requires that the conversation around identity politics is economic. It has to be. The administration and most administrations... <laughs> Uh, before this one, the economic conversation has centered mostly around wealth. The reason that all those white people, even though they think he's a moron, voted for him is in part because they picked the team, but it's also because they knew they were going to make money. Their portfolios are doing quite well right now. All those white people who voted for him made a calculated decision to choose him, even though he's a complete and total raging jackass. The last number that I saw said that average Trump voters' household income was $77,000. That's fucking insane. Okay? Those people that's who pretty. voted for him rich, were richies. And, and not, that's not to say that poor people didn't also vote for him, but that is, a, that, that is helpful in understanding sort of where their interest is. This is going to be a serious reckoning where, where the culture is going to have to decide if, from a party politics standpoint, if the Democratic Party is going to go all in on equality 
all of us are citizens, period, and all of us deserve equal rights, and ride that train to the end and include class analysis. Or if we're going to do this, you know, Bernie Sanders half-hearted approach, class first with no real mention of its relationship to the contingent productions of racial, gender, class identity. You cannot just talk about class without talking about identity politics. He did it poorly. He never got there because of his age and because of his, his commitments and the way that he has studied class and understands it. So the next person, should they be so inclined to operate from positionality that's similar to your, yours and mine, they are going to have to articulate class politics in a way that fundamentally reasserts individual rights as an important thing, as class-based protection as an important thing in America. They're going to have to make more articulate claims about rights in relation to the health of, of individuals in their, their household economies. They are going to have to do that work. Because the GOP does that very well, and the Democrats suck at both of those things. They suck at talking about rights, and they suck at talking about money. And that's why they lose. And to me, looking at this dumpster fire of an administration and what should be an easy face crush in the 2018 midterm elections, if the Democrats can't learn how to talk about rights and talk about their relationship to wealth, between now and then, they have done this to themselves. Because it's not, it's just not that difficult. You know, in in the field of rhetoric, we talk about how there are a set number of topics, right, of political topics. There are only ever a set number of topics. You know, there are like five of them, right? Ways and means and security of the nation, foreign policy and taxes and tariffs. It's not like there are all of these new topics that emerge around the nation or citizenship. So it's not like there are new ideas that emerge in the political sphere in terms of the kinds of political choices we have to make. So it should be very clear to millennials and Gen Xers that from this point forward, they must be better at talking about rights and money than they are right now. And so, you know, maybe it behooves the Democratic Party or, you know, the indivisible folk or grassroots activists to take up the Black Lives Matter perspective of making syllabi and say, here are the 10 readings, right, that everybody, every progressive in America needs to look at as their, you know, guiding lights for re reimagining what a collective future looks like in a neoliberal capitalist country. How do we shift the power back? Thanks for listening. These materials are not endorsed, approved, sponsored, or provided by or on behalf of the University of Arkansas Fayetteville.